Welcome to another edition of Two Irish Guys Discussing Software. This month, I'm without Brendan. He's not here. He's sadly on holidays. But the really, really good news, I am joined by my very good friend, co-founder, the real genius behind the company and all the ideas, and uh, Waterford native and our CTO and head of service innovation, Rowan O'Donoghue. How are you? Drum roll. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. Thanks very much. We, we, ha- we had some feedback, I believe, that uh, we needed someone with a bit more charisma uh, and style to come in. So we- we'll give Brendan a bit of a break uh, this week. Shit, I'm in trouble then. <laughs> we might have to replace me too then. Well, we'll assess that at the end, so we'll see what happens. You know? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll have a little, we'll have a little poll of our, of our listeners to see how, how genuinely true that is. Or is, that just a, is that just the office poll? Yeah, it's self-inflated, but anyway. <laughs> Great to have you here. Great to have you, you here. We have another episode. We have a crack at episode this week, actually. We're going to ex- discuss and explore enterprise application security and how to avoid... The King's Ransomware, mm. <laughs> as they say. Uh, and we're going to be joined by our one of our latest members of our own team, yep. Ben Lipsinski, who is our Head of Security Services. Yep. A very exciting man. Uh, we're looking forward to have a chat with him very soon. He'll be joining us and we're going to talk about, you know, I mean, I think this stuff is... Oh, this stuff is in the, in the press. You talk about the Colonial Pipeline. Yeah. Our own health service here in Ireland's been attacked. I mean, it's, it's on the up. It's on the up. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, it's it's a whole industry. You know, it's commercially rewarding for a lot of these guys. So I think we're just going to see more and more of it. So naturally, it's on people's radar. So it's great that we have we're discussing it today. And we've got Ben on board. So. Yeah. Well, the scary thing is we got illegitimate actors, hmm? like the the likes of those two we just described. We've also got legit potentially legitimate actors. I don't know if you've been listening to about the Pegasus report, the Pegasus software with the Israeli software. Oh company. yeah, the spyware. Yeah, the spyware. Yeah. So you've got a whole range of things. So this whole area is exploding. So some really good stuff, some really good content to talk about, some surveys to talk about. But we'll get to that shortly. Yeah. Let's have a look what's what's in the news. So I, I was just checking what's in the news, and sadly we obviously don't have Brendan, so we're not going to get a a, a monologue of results. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank God, I see. <laughs> um, Fingers crossed. We, we have, uh, I saw, uh, speaking of results, Oracle have leapfrogged Salesforce and we've given Oracle an so awful... So this is a good news story now, right? Well, this is a good news story. <laughs> Just we, checking. We give Larry an awful hard time with this thing. poor Larry. And, and deservedly so. But actually, they have moved their market cap ahead of Salesforce. Now, for years, obviously, it was ahead yeah. of Salesforce. But up until recently, I mean, talk about 10 months ago, Salesforce had a market cap of $256 billion. I was 40% higher than Oracle's uh, $173 billion. Seven weeks ago, it was $243 billion for Oracle and $225 billion. And I had a look this morning. It's $250 billion, Oracle. $225 billion. Wow. You know, and Larry loves his competition. Salesforce are just static. Well, that's it. I mean, what's the story? What, is, what has happened to Larry mm-hmm. and to uh, Safra? Have they finally turned the corner? Yeah, I don't seems know. to be paying off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, speaking of billions, 
Did you see St- Steve Farmer? Steve Farmer. You know, I, I met Steve once. I thought I thought he was dead. <laughs> I think he's just retired. Oh right, okay. Yeah, yeah I don't think he's dead. Where yet. did you well, meet him? Sorry, I so, didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Did, you not here. did you not? Oh, okay. Well, this is when you when you kind of mingle with the elite, you know. But um, no, we were uh, this. Where did I meet Steve? It was back in two thousand and eight. I think it was at um. This is when we had our old IBM BP business. Uh, we had some vendors used to knock on our door and ask if we were interested uh-huh. in exploring a relationship with them. Don't tell me so Steve came knocking. Steve, no, no, one of Steve's millions, uh, some part of the local team, uh, invited us over to, I think it was in Houston, and uh, to go to their uh, annual partner event. Right. Obviously a very high wattage, uh, vivacious guy, you know, yeah. not like uh, his predecessor, but he roasted me. He roasted so, you. Yeah, because you, when you were over there, obviously you go to the event and you mingle with the partners and you understand about the wares and services, etc. And this time, obviously, Microsoft were trying to convert us, you know, to get, get access to the IBM footprint. But then you, at the end of the conference, you have an audience, an audience with Steve. Right. So about, there were about 10 other potential partners. So I asked the question, a bit tongue in cheek. So because <laughs> what, there were t- what was your question? Well, my question was, so there was lots of, uh, I guess, unhappiness amongst the IBM or the Microsoft BPs about the reduction in percentage they were getting on reseller services. Then about 2%, 1%, right? So I put up the question say, you know, great, being over here this week, understanding about the journey, sounds really positive. And I was just explaining about our story, you know, in the IBM domain, very niche, typically margins up around 8%, very hard to see in terms of what the opportunity was. And he literally calls it out and he goes, this guy is exactly why the rest of you guys need to be a, a Microsoft partner. <laughs> you're roasting customers are you doing it in tongue and cheek as well but I was just kind of going I was that small in my chair I said right okay because he had a bit of a crazy personality he was he yeah he he is off the charts off oh the charts but really good guy but yeah he's it, it, it was nearly like a Conor McGregor moment you know what I mean but anyway yeah well yeah. he's well he's yeah. worth over 100 billion now and you know what as well I was speaking about Larry earlier he will be disappointed he might be his overall market cap but as of the last figures I looked at he was wasn't quite at the hundred billion. He didn't get it. Is it He's ninety eight point six billion, according to Bloomberg billionaires oh. on their last report. These things can change. Go on, Larry, have a go. There's hope for you. There's right. hope for you. Listen, yeah. we need to get to serious business because right, a okay. number of serious things have been going on in the in the software world. But not only in the software world, in the whole tech world. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast many times, as you know. Yep. And we've talked about the changes, the antitrust law changes that are happening. We talked about that in the last episode. But only last week, we had some sweeping changes from Joe Biden in their promotion of competition. And indeed, as of this week, we've got new things like the FTC, run by Lena Khan, have just announced that they have unanimously voted to ramp up law enforcement against repair restrictions. By enforcing against restrictions that violate antitrust or consumer protection laws, the Commission is taking important steps to restore the right to repair. This is good stuff. This is a move in the right this direction. This is good stuff. And Biden uh, signed a whole lot of his sweeping executive orders, and he made a great quote. I quote, he goes, Capitalism without competition is exploitation. Right. Yes. And they have a new council, I believe. I thought it was an employee, employee engagement committee, but it was at a customer competition, or no, White House Competition Council. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right, so right, they, yeah. they have that, and they are going to work more and more with the European Union, which has been leading over the last yeah. five or six years, arguably, but the US have really stepped in. And I saw Amy uh, Klubacher, who was, I think she was running for, was she not running for the Democratic nomination? She was right. one of the many 
that were in, in the race with Biden. Yeah. She was on CNN uh, er, earlier this week and she was talking about taking on Monopoly. So this is a huge, huge, this is great. story. Yeah. story. There was yeah. one potential flaw I saw in it because I was reading it during the week um, and there were talk, there's some details in there about big data and I think there was a piece there about uh, you know avoiding these kind of generic brands, obviously trying to uh, promote customer choice. But they were saying that big vendors are not going to be able to use big data to promote those wares. So an example would be Someone like Amazon, you know the way they do these, these kind of basics brands and stuff for that. So Amazon, you know, they let other third parties go in and sell their wares, like I mean, maybe Duracell batteries, etc. But that would potentially prevent someone like Amazon from just selling their own basics batteries and stuff mm. for that. And that potentially could extend to things like whether Apple down the line, you know, they include like a note, you know, as part of their um, the iOS application or the, the operating system. But they may be prevented from, I, I guess, like the likes of Evernote in terms of unfairly protecting those organizations from a competition perspective. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So it might be, you know. Yeah. Well, I think they're trying. Aren't they, aren't they trying to separate the marketplace though from the actual pro- products themselves? Because at the moment, Amazon own both for in that in that example. Hmm. And actually, they have come out as you'll probably seen. They have seen themselves and Facebook have come out and asked for uh, secret recusal of Lena Khan to actually to step back from her role as uh, head of F- F- the FTC. So I actually think it's quite interesting. I mean, yeah. Facebook actually filed a petition arguing that. Can had consistently made public statements accusing the company of bad conduct that constitutes a violation of antitrust law. So they're really going after her because some of the stuff that she did, some as far back as when she was a student. Yeah, you know, talk about you know going back into people's pasts and digging up the smallest Farland thing. Stories. Be careful what you do yeah. as a as a fifteen year old <laughs> or a twenty year old. I have that conversation you know? every day with my kids. Yeah, all yeah. I'm, I'm just saying as a 50- hope she didn't do it on Facebook now in terms of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But all, all I'm saying is as a fifty year old man, I'm glad that social media technology did not exist in my yeah. day. Different world. <laughs> the things they would have found out. But that's a step in the right direction. Oh, it's a fantastic step. I know. No, really, really good. And yeah. I think this what we're seeing now is for the first time really seeing some big big changes yeah you know and that's i think that's really really important the other thing i thought was really interesting and it's kind of related to our our, our business as well is further news now we've talked myself and brendan have spoken about this previously if we would have heard the microsoft claim by the uk reseller license reseller value licensing lawsuit against microsoft they're claiming 270 million pounds in the UK, uh, the London High Court, okay? And what they're doing is Microsoft, accusing Microsoft of abusing its dominant position in the kind of desktop space Mm. by saying, licenses that are perpetual. So these licenses are perpetually issued. They're forcing customers to, who consume software as a service, so the Office 365 suite or whatever it is, that they're heavily discounting that on the basis that you basically extinguish or hand back your right to the old licenses. The on-premise ones. Yeah, yeah. So right, we, okay. we, we saw IBM trying to do this yeah. as well in the past. And so they're trying to push people to the cloud. Yeah, pushing people to the cloud. Okay. So there's, there's, so value license are claiming that this specifically contravenes UK Competition Act of 1998 and indeed articles of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. Mm. So ultimately saying it's fundamentally yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, impacting like the fundamentals of the European Union, which were all, a lot of the yeah. laws are based on. So, so I think it's I think it's quite quite incredible. But but IBM, I mean, they tried to do the same thing with was it Domino software? Domino, over the they years, and they don't own it anymore, obviously. But it's a bit removing choice, you know. For a lot of customers, still have on-premise licenses. I'm sure there's probably worth it. Yeah, you know, a, a yeah. good few bob. They want to move them onto organizations yeah. that maybe are looking for the licenses. Yeah. But it's it's this whole shift across the board 
trying to get customers into the, the I guess the cloud services, you know. Yeah. And it just ain't yeah. paying off. You were looking at IBM. Tell us what's happened with IBM. Oh, we, have to have, speaking, we have to talk about our best friends. Speaking about our best friends, we we love IBM, but uh, but they're 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 back on the road again. So they're on an acquisition trail. Oh, I heard this. Yeah, yeah. Yes, who who yes. did they buy? They buy Boxcoat. Um, okay. So they're ramping up in terms of their spend. This is their 10th acquisition. Okay. Um, in about the last 18 months. So wow. they're really getting behind their focus in terms of driving to hybrid cloud. So this is, you know, there's a couple of services companies in here. A lot of co- companies struggling in terms of getting, modernizing their applications, getting them into the cloud. There's a couple of uh, acquisitions in here uh, around from a security perspective in the cloud. But I guess, yeah, listen, it's, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, I think there'll be more in the way. But unfortunately, I was actually having, I was talking to uh, Gartner last week and we were talking about IBM, our mm-hmm. best friends. But unfortunately, they're, they're rated a paltry 24 out of 100 in their cloud services portfolio compared to the other vendors. So we talked about Oracle, for example, they've been up there around 70%, Amazon up at 90%. So the maturity of the service offering, they're rated at the bottom of the pile. Wow. So this, so it's a bit like, you know, a bit like going into the casino, yeah, and batting everything on red. This strategy better pay off. You know? But they're not even, they're, I mean, they're, their cloud revenue growth is pretty low, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was six percent. I think I saw was they they six percent overall. But I think what's pushing that is the red hat numbers. Yeah. So okay. red hat has actually increased, yeah. but the overall. I mean, if you look back at IBM's numbers and we talk about their, their even their Q two results, their numbers have been in constant decline from a market share perspective in the last year. It went from thirty four, I think, down to about twenty three, ninety, and in Q four last year it was just eight percent in terms of growth, right? Yeah. And I think in Q two now it's down to six percent. Okay. So the strategy certainly ain't paying off. But behind that, I guess the red hat cloud software sales and stuff like that, that is kind of bumping it up. So and interestingly enough, I think S and P actually downrated them to an A minus rating actually earlier on this year, particularly in relation to their strategy and could they pull it off. Was that and the debt they were carrying Was that well. not to do with their debt? Yes. It was, the, yeah, to do with the debt, but they're all linked. But yeah, obviously, okay, okay, yeah, future yeah, outlook yeah. and whether they have the ability to kind of pay it off. But I mean, if you look at even on the debt side of things, I mean. Because they have huge debt, don't they? Like, it is eye watering. I mean, what's what's the figure there at the moment? I think it's, we've got like 56.4 billion, like billion. Yeah. And this yeah, is growing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you yeah. put this in perspective, it was 34 billion in 2008. Right. You know, 45 billion in 2017. So like that's a so I think this comes on the back of you know there's a bit of jitters out there in terms of whether IBM actually have the right strategy yeah you know this all in on cloud is it actually working for them you know obviously it's great to see they've got a bit of success on these kind of numbers you know they're up three percent it's modest but is this long is this long term so the their their numbers are out recently up three percent numbers are up three percent yeah so it's an end to that consecutive is it twenty two quarters of negative. Growth. It was kind of like a lot. It was, yeah, <laughs> it was going on forever. It was going now, on forever. There's, there's a positive. It's yeah. it's on the upwards. But that will change again once they move Kindle on. I mean, Kindle, yeah. they have Kindle numbers still in their IBM numbers, haven't they? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, they're trying to get rid of Kindle. I mean, yeah. that's the old kind of GTS business. Yeah. You know, moving that out as part of the managed services, that's going to take a bit of time. Yeah. But at the same time, they've got all these new acquisitions, which is no doubt behind that debt. Yeah. Um, but listen, it's it's on a positive track, but it, it really depends on whether this cloud and this AI strategy is actually going to pay off. You know, and it, again, it's kind of from our side, it's difficult to see because we see a lot of, there's a lot of chatter about cloud and cloud packing services. We haven't actually seen a whole lot of adoption. So I think people are they're claiming they, going to war. They're sorry, they, they, their results yeah, said that I, cloud pack I've was... seen that. Yeah, I, I don't believe that at all. I think there's a lot of chatter, right? Yeah. But I think coming back to that rating of 24 out of 100, yeah. And I think people, the customers are beginning to question, do IBM actually have the right strategy to be able to pull this off? 
yeah. I mean, unless those numbers start going back up, I'd actually be worried. Yeah. But um, well, if you compare, like that, you're talking about six percent growth in cloud revenue for IBM. If you compare those to SAP, for example, they they've come out with the results and they're eleven percent growth. You know, almost double percentage growth that, yeah. that IBM are experiencing. And that's without an acquisition like Red Hat, for example, which is a significant acquisition, as you know. And that's probably, I mean, it's Red Hat is probably was the responsible for a significant portion of that. Huge. That 50 yeah. odd billion dollar debt. You know? And I think the biggest thing is, I mean, if I look at those acquisitions, particularly the services companies, I think where, if they are going to pull this off, it's about helping customers do that adoption for the applications which they feel is right yeah. to modernize. Yeah. You know? well, all, the, all the CEOs think their strategy is working, including Christian Klein, who was also <laughs> saying that his strategy is working. <laughs> so I'm sure Arvin Everyone's saying, strategy everybody's is working. Everybody's saying yeah. their strategy is working yeah. until until it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, So and there was another bit of news along for one last another piece for IBM. They had a bit of a fiasco. Oh, what did they do? Uh, a bit of an outage. Um, so obviously, IBM had big, an outage. Yeah, this 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 probably isn't really a good one to be kind of shining a light on, particularly when you know you've got we talk about those cloud based figures and IBM trying to get into the cloud. But anyway, it was it was a bit of an email fiasco. So you know the way HCL kind of bought notes and stuff around, mm. and they took over back in two thousand eighteen. Uh, IBM because HCL were dropping. So not all our cloud. all our not all our listeners might know that. Oh so right, too. okay. <laughs> so we better a bit of a history lesson then. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so obviously HCL. Yes. Now own notes, right? Yeah. They bought. That I think back to the Indian technology company. Indian yeah. company, yeah. yeah. And I think if, if global we, you'll see some of the details say, behind yeah. that, yeah. But IBM so ingrained and used notes for years, right, for business processes and the notes applications. So it wasn't just about email, but it was business applications. So obviously IBM, when HCL decided to drop their cloud and hosting services, they said, right, we're going to bring this back in again. Mm. So there was a bit of an email migration going on. And obviously it just went belly up, right? And I think Arvin tried to downplay it. It was a bit of a, you know, an ad hoc disruption, only affecting users on an ad hoc basis. But it turns out that it was actually more widespread than what people believe. So it was about half of their 400,000 mailboxes were gone for a huge amount of time. Sorry, of just so I'm clear, did they build, rebuild a new email? No, they're moving it back in, into IBM. So they're moving it out of the but host. They, but they, are they still using notes though? Still using notes. Okay, yeah. still using Well, notes. with Outlook, and there's, I think they have a, what is it, with their web one, it's called Verve internally and so on, but it's still notes behind okay. the scenes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the whole thing just kind of went belly up. Now, if we peel back the layers of the onion, what really happened here, it looks like they didn't have the skills, the proper skills, to plan the migration, right? Now, I'm sure there's probably lots of IBM or notes experts who were furloughed over the years who were sitting on the sidelines yeah. laughing at this, right? So we know loads of them. Yeah, we know loads of them. So I did actually put up a comment on LinkedIn, calling, maybe just calling this out because we've got lots of this expertise within the team. And we know for years, we had this when we were BP. Were you, offering, were you offering our expertise I was to offering IBM? to help. I was, I'd hate to see someone down. You know, oh, very generous. They still love the technology. Well, you're going to give them a special, <laughs> special discount. I give them a discount, a loyalty bonus. Yeah, very generous. <laughs> for all the business they've given us over the years. Yeah, you're very generous. I, I, I'm, very, I'm, I'm so yeah, pleased we, we're yeah. friends. But anyway, so that wasn't a good one. But, uh, but I think there's talk of it again, linking back to the numbers and the debt because of the disruption having an impact on the numbers. So they've actually resorted to using Slack rather than email because they can't send out emails to process orders. Okay. So there you go. Let's hope they've got more, uh, a, a robust platform behind their Slack environment. Oh dear, for, for oh dear, oh dear. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, was... you know, they they have they do some good things from time to time, and they actually came out with a very interesting survey, believe it or not. They Ooh. published a survey. Um, I like a good survey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they did this. With, they they worked with a company called Morning Consult, looking at decision makers, federal government decision makers in the United States. Okay, big mm-hmm. big part of the, of the of the of the of the industry, clearly. And they were asking them questions. Um, they asked 500 current and former U.S. government IT decision makers about their prioritization 
of cybersecurity. So we're talking about today. Security. Going to get back to the topic at hand before we bring Ben in. Yeah. And we're we're uh, talking about security and the ransomware and Pegasus and all these issues. So clearly, it's, this is a huge issue. So a lot, a lot of surveys going on. I'm sure we're seeing them coming into our own organization. 500 organizations asking them about that transition to the cloud. Mm. Okay. This tra- modernization technology is where clearly... We're at the at the at the edge of that all the time is what we do in yeah. our business, as you know. But seventy five percent of respondents said that moving data to the cloud is a challenge. All right, mm. and seventy percent of those said that the security risks was a top barrier to cloud migration. Okay, so you know, what we're looking at here is clearly people having challenges, mm. having challenges from these, particularly you talk about federal government, large large systems, large applications used by citizens, used by government agencies used by you know, mission critical systems yeah. um, I think isn't there because a, a term they use in the UK is and maybe Ben will fill us in the critical network infrastructure CNI I think it's called oh yeah you know these are all part of the critical network yeah. and on, on, you know increasingly you know there's a trend that everything to go to the cloud but the reality is not everything is moving to the cloud mm-hmm. and I actually think this is be a really really good time to bring yeah. Ben in. Ben has just joined us. Ben, how are you? I'm well, just, thank you. Good to see you, Ben. Thank so you, Ben, I, I know your background, you recently joined us. We're delighted to have you heading up for security practice. You're ex-Royal Navy. Aye. You're ex-UK Ministry of Defence. And you about five years ago, you joined the private sector and you're in here now in the last couple of months. You have spent most of your existence in the security world, in the security apparatus of one of the, probably the most reputable organizations in the world in that area. What do you think of this? You know, <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, this, this sort of, pri- you know, feedback to so that, if we take that survey and look at it and say, what does that, what does that mean for our business? You know what I mean? Because does that mean they're going to stick around on some of the older stuff for longer? Are they going to, is that going to increase the importance of security for some of these legacy applications? And how should customers think about that? So that's a good, is that, or is that a good place to start? Yeah, we can start there. Yeah, I, th- I think it comes back to, you know, I think if we look back at the history, it's that sort of critical national infrastructure piece. I did get it right, did I? Close, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so depending on whether you're in the US or the UK, you have a number of domains, yeah. um, you know, which can include things like financial services, transportation, and then the subsequent subdomains. Uh, and if we think back to the history, sort of cyber started to rise in prevalence, uh, you know, in the early 2000s. Mm. And it was back in 2010, I think the term the fifth domain was coined, and then subsequently accepted by NATO in sort of 2016. And I think it sort of came around the, the fact that the technology that was being used to exploit and disrupt national infrastructure mm. was moving more and more into, the, into this digital domain where threat actors could remotely uh, conduct their attacks. They didn't have to come into your geography to achieve it and, and ultimately hide in the, the, the digital shadows. And it was at that point the government's turned around and went, well, we need to do something about this. Uh, and then they realised that actually a lot of it had been privatised. Yeah. So, so you have to approach this problem in a, in a different way. You have to go through a sort of education, uh, co- you know, training, support, is, is it a bit like the spies are now privatised, like the spooks? You know, the guys working in the, the, the MI5s and the James Bonds. You'll be world. watching far too much TV. <laughs> but it's a bit like that. I guess, I guess um, cyber, the, the digital domain has made, made things a lot easier. Mm. It's a tool. 
you know, no longer do you have to sit, you know, rent the hotel room next door and put the cup against the wall to, to listen to what's going on. Yeah. They've probably got an Alexa there or, um, you know, their mobile phone, which you can, can, can well, link into. Well, you heard about Pegasus. I couldn't get over it. I was yeah. listening to the, uh, reading the Guardian reports during, during the week and I couldn't get over what they actually, you, you're, the fear. The one guy was telling telling that he, when he was having a conversation about it, he was taking his two phones that he had, <coughs> putting them into the spare bedroom and putting them under two mattresses <laughs> so that the phones couldn't be turned on to listen to the conversation. I mean, it's scary, isn't it? You know, so it, it is actually really, really easy if they wanted to do it. The, the technologies here, I think, linking back to your conversation earlier, and a, a lot of the technology isn't delivered, uh, developed rather in a malicious manner. Mm. A lot of it's developed by engineers to be able to achieve their job. Yeah, mm. you then get somebody else with a different intent, a different motive mm. that says, "Oh, thank you very much. I can use that to uh, yeah. achieve that." You know, Wi-Fi sniffing, for yeah. example. Yeah, and I think the fear, this this move to the cloud. I think that there's there's some benefits to it, which I think are fairly fairly clear. But there's also understanding it, the trust of the system. You know, w- what are they exposing themselves to? Yeah, and this doesn't even negate for the. It's not a, a clean swap. You know, mm. there's there's a lot of complexity for an engineering level. And I think we've just seen uh, people start to stand back and have a look at this and think, do I really understand what I'm doing? Ultimately, you could potentially increasing your exposure to vulnerabilities or, or external actions. Yeah. And I think this is what, for me, this is what we're seeing now. The, sort of the cloud thing sort of come over the hype curve. And now people are taking that, that opportunity to sit back and go, actually, have I truly considered the operational, but in this case, the security risk of, of, of mm-hmm. making such a move? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you think people, there's that hesitance because some of the cloud services are not mature yet and then we're seeing more in terms of our prevalence, in terms of these kind of exposures, ransomware, etc. Do you think people are kind of, oh, this is what creating the focus, the 75% people worried about security, they're just kind of going, oh. I think partially, I think, you know, the capabilities there, but I think it's the understanding of it. I know that some of the cloud providers have recently started to get a bit nervous around this mm. in the sense of, you know, we can't forget, you know, the cloud somebody else's computer. They can secure the tin, but the user has to be very conscious of their roles and responsibilities when they move their systems there. And they actually retain an awful lot of those roles and responsibilities around security, you know, correct configuration, mm. data transfer, for example. And I think the effort required behind that, plus the enhanced training and development in this new technology is suddenly coming to, you know, bubbling to the, to the surface as, as a, a consideration. Do you think they don't know that? Do you think, or sorry, do they underestimate that? I certainly do, yeah. I, yeah. Think, it's, I think it's underestimated. I don't, you know, none of this is impossible, but I don't think the true extent of effort to ensure that the successful transition is made is fully understood, mm-hmm. or even the partial transition. And whose responsibility is it that to tell companies that there's a requirement for the state to get involved, like legislators to explain... That this transition requires certain boxes to be ticked to keep everybody safe, or is it the provider's responsibility? I mean, I, I'm not that I'm promoting the state intervention, but sometimes this is if it is critical network infrastructure. Well, then you know, in this particular case, we were talking about it in, in terms of that survey, but even things that are not necessarily owned by the government, the airline systems, they're not owned by the government. But if they, if every if every airline stopped flying, you know, look what happened when when we had lockdown last year. You know, you know, people couldn't go anywhere. Businesses were really impacted. Who's responsible for that, do you think? Or is it a combination? Well, I think, yeah, I think there's the responsibility ultimately lies with the service provider. I think, you know, okay. so the airline. That's where I would, would place it. Yes, 
governments are getting nervous mm. about this. I mean, recently in Ireland, we've seen direction that allows our government bodies to move to the cloud, but with due consideration. And I think the government's role, as we, we've seen in the US, the UK, uh, and Ireland, is, is to equip those considering such a move with the right questions to ask. Okay. And, and providing sort of support in going through these checks and balances to make sure that you know everything has been fully considered. For me, it's about understanding the risk. You know, it's not just identifying it, but truly understanding it. And that's dynamic. That's mm. dependent on your threat environment. That's dependent on your operational requirements today. It's dependent on where you want to take your operational requirements in the future, new products, new services, for example. And But the next key question is, what is acceptable risk? You know, it, it is a bit of a cold war out there. You've come up with a new defensive measure. The threat actors, if sufficiently motivated, will come up with a new attack. And nothing is there for zero. Mm. So you need to determine what your acceptable risk level is yeah. and take the appropriate mitigating actions to achieve it. And that's not necessarily just one mitigating yeah. action. It could be a combination of several, you know, defense in depth um, across people, processes and, uh, and technologies. And then I think you go into sort of the maturity curve there. Once you've achieved your acceptable level, you start again, mm-hmm. you review it again, you, you recess <laughs> and you move on. And, and do you think organizations have a good grasp on what the security risk is because i mean we, we, we see this you know when we look about the i guess what they call the, the you know the legacy applications you know in-house we've seen customers where they've you know they've, they've suffered with a loss of knowledge the expertise that was once in the organization is now gone sometimes they're nearly fearful of doing anything with those systems then there's a potential of a move to the cloud do you think they have a good handle on it i mean are these old applications are they less or more prone to these kind of threats you know it's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. I think it really depends on the on, on, on the individual company. I think the scale clearly has a as a change a component to this. You know, companies that maybe have gone through a rapid case of merger and acquisition where they've done combination of technologies. They might have merged a, a company and with that as an operation, but also as a technology and the people, and then subsequently possibly lost. Mm. the people behind it yeah i have heard stories of the gray box with the green light on we don't touch it we don't know what's inside <laughs> because we don't know our operational impact and i think that you know that that hits on a sort of a, a core point and security should be an enabler not not stopping you from achieving your, your objectives mm-hmm. but at the end of the day most people are measured on operational output operational objectives not how well they were secured you know rarely do you get marked up or a bonus because you weren't attacked that week. And I think for me, you know, mentioning my background, Sun Tzu for me <laughs> sums it up yeah. in, in the art of war. You know, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Mm. So for me, it's constantly reassessing the threat environment. It's constantly reassessing what you're doing mm. and making those uh, appropriate adjustments. Do legacy components form part of that? Most definitely. I think with legacy components, one thing we have to remember is they've been around for a while legacy and it's provided opportunity for threat actors to have a poke around and identify vulnerabilities equally it is provided the good guys to poke around and identify the vulnerabilities so it's constantly keeping an eye on that and taking as we mentioned before those those appropriate mitigating steps to reach your acceptable risk level that should be considered in the context of your environment so yeah. across 
all your depths of your architecture across all your domains of your your business and, and typically calling people processes technology so it's probably no surprise then that survey people are it seems that they're comfortable where they work where they are on some of these older applications these older systems from a security perspective because of familiarity and um, because they know where the you talked about the Sansu things they know where their own weaknesses and their strengths are so when you know your weaknesses are at least you could provide some level of defense Whereas if you don't know them in the new environment, that's where some of the challenges are, perhaps. They don't they won't know where those challenges are. I think there's there's definitely some of that. I mean, you know, change is risk. Yeah. So so making the change to a new platform, a new a new technology has its own inherent risks in its yeah. own right. So that should be uh, you know considered within the equation as you know, which is the greater risk, the the, the move to the new platform introducing potentially new vulnerabilities but also having operational downtime yeah uh, operational impacts or staying where you are yeah but having those vulnerabilities known out there and having to take proactive actions uh, such as hardening your systems to yeah. to appropriately uh, put yourself in a, in a stronger security posture yeah mm-hmm. yeah so you probably have to because everybody wants to ultimately get to the new environment <laughs> some, somewhere along that journey so i think it's probably the the wise move is to look at that particularly for something that's very critical, for sure, that you cannot, cannot afford a problem, is that transition takes a bit of time. Because mm-hmm. you look at sort of the sort of products that we support in our business, you know, DB2, WebSphere, data management products, Suite, Cognos, all these products that we support, typically they're not you know, corner shop systems, they're mission critical systems. So that transition needs to be done very, very carefully. But protecting the old one Actually, knowing the vulnerabilities is critical, isn't it? Yes, yeah. you, you can't you can't forget where you are. It's it's yeah. uh, you don't switch one off and yeah. switch switch the other one. It's it's a journey to be made mm. and measured. And you have to have those people. <laughs> you have to have the people. But yeah. even if you look at the IBM example, risk comes in different forms. Like there was an outage where they just didn't have the skills. Probably because well, it probably went too far on security. I didn't think about the <laughs> operation risk, and I think. If, you yeah. know, would it not be fair to say that you know uh, the way I've always thought about security is it's inev- inevitable with, with technology and what we have today you're going to get caught out at some point right but it's your what the real asset test is how your ability to recover on the back of it and we've seen it recently with the HSE example they're you know they've been massively impacted but if you're able to recover them systems to a point without having to pay a ransom for example and so like surely isn't that your best defense against a lot of these I mean, you can always you know, go on the, the kind of defense or the offensive to try and harden these systems, etc. But they'll always, it's like a game of cat and mouse. There's always a back door, you get exposed. I think for me that was always, but I don't know whether that's the right approach. I mean, it's, I, I think, do I people think, overlook that? Yeah, well, I think I think they do. I think, you know, it's, you call it the bang, I guess, where the attack, you've got to look before the bang and, and, and post the bang and you should be sort of ready for all. Um, you know, do everything you can to defend your assets and ultimately your business proactively you understand the not the system around you understand what your critical uh, functions are you know your, your crown jewels appropriately prioritize your efforts to secure these within your constraints of uh, business operations and finance and available resourcing mm. skill sets but yes unfortunately sometimes all your best efforts you might fall foul of a, of a threat actor so be ready to respond to it you know and it's not about uh, giving it lip service and just having an instant response capability practice it post incident or you know when you're being hacked is, is is not the time to learn how it it works yeah and i think another thing that i would would highlight here is it's not just the tech teams it's not just the security teams this is the whole company yeah 
it's about the messaging to your stakeholders, about the messaging to your, com your customers and making sure that everyone has this, this joined up thinking in approach, but also that, that operational resiliency, that ability to fall back to other options should your primary technologies mm -hmm. uh, become unavailable. And I think there's, there's numerous examples where the old school way of conducting business is, is forgotten over time mm. and not practiced. Yeah. And very subtly, potentially without being captured within your risk metrics, the dependency on these uh, critical te technologies mm. slowly grows. And then when you realize it, it's, it's too late. late. And if you look at the, like, the technologies mm. a lot of our customers have, so MQ and DB2, some of the ones we mentioned, is you're, you're with us you know, a short amount of time, but do you see any trends and commonality in terms of where the weak points are which people need to focus on? Or Yeah, I, 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 like you said, um, I've only been here a, a short while, but there are a couple of themes that I think are, are standing out. And for me, the, the core product, if you will, is mature. It, mm. It's been around for a while. The the sort of uh, niggles and its vulnerabilities are well known and uh, and addressable. It's the other components that get sold with this as a package to make it function within a customer's environment to allow it to integrate within their in their ecosystem. And a lot of these are using open source technologies and script. And I think the trend I'm starting to see bubble to the surface is it's these bits mm. that are potentially the vulnerability. And I think that's that, that that's twofold. One, because it's not within the core control of the software manufacturer. Uh, but but secondly, because they're open source, everyone can lay yeah. their, their hands on it yeah. and pull it apart and poke around with it. Fortunately, we have good guys and people that, that yeah. do this, yeah. white hats, and, and they'll kindly let the software developers know, seeing this vulnerability, there's, you know, they can earn from it on, on bounty programs, they can take pride from it in finding a you know a vulnerability and build up mm. you know their profile flip side there's other people finding this these vulnerabilities they might not actually use them as the threat actor mm. they might find this some vulnerability and, and sell the knowledge on someone else might take that knowledge and develop a malicious piece of software yeah someone else might take that malicious piece of software and then use it to achieve an objective so there's a whole sort of ecosystem and business operating and, here. And when you look at an IBM product, because when you talk about those open source models, most IBM products are a combination of IBM products, but also the open source components and stuff like that. So, so be fair to say, if you see something like Java or an Apache HTTP component, it just doesn't affect one application like DB2. The same components are also in other products like MQ and WAS, etc. So, I mean, if we if we look at a lot of the security bulletins, it probably is fair to say that most of those concerns are directly, as you say, related to those. Correct. And I think this, this comes to knowing, you, knowing yourself, you know, there might be uh, an efficient means of uh, achieving your risk mitigation by standing back and looking at the bigger picture. If there's multiple products all using the same vulnerable open source software, then actually tackling that rather than looking at individual systems might be uh, a more economic way of, of achieving your appropriate risk level. You know, just remembering that you've got to reassess this on a, on a periodic basis, you know, mm -hmm. things move on and test it. Yeah, that's quite interesting because if you think of it, we, like, we always get asked the question about, you know, security, naturally so, in terms yeah. of, you know, can you write fixes and patches? But will it not be fair to say when we talk about the open source components, IBM are in the same boat. They don't own the open source. So they're dependent on that community in which to write the fix for those components to go back and bundle as part of patch for the product. Yeah, and certainly, yeah. and I think the same. You know, you could argue the same for their own core products as well. If, mm. if, if they're moving them on and they're no longer in support, then that expertise 
you know, will have been moved on either with with new products or they've gone to to look for roles, yeah. you know, elsewhere. So the ability to look at how these components integrate, and and for the customer, even knowing what is in the box, you know, you you have the main brand say Cognos on the on the on the on the wrapping, mm. but actually knowing what's in there is you know is is, is key because yeah. they might not have all undergone the same. Due diligence. You're describing a world of spies and counter spies. <laughs> and, yeah, it is. It's like this guy's I said earlier, James Bond, John Le Carrier. I'm, 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 I'm seeing it all now. It's, are you? The, this sounds like a very sexy uh, role you've got now. There's a movie here, is there? <laughs> is, is this the? Uh, I mean, they should really sex this up a bit. Like, <laughs> no, it's great. I, I, I love no, to be it. fair, there are some good guys. We've got some white hat guys and some which is uh, help us to you know in the team as well to defend against these but yeah, yeah. certainly a, 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 I don't know whether it's a sexy industry <laughs> in a row, but we'll, we'll see what happens over time and then tell me you, you recently by the way did I say this you recently were successful with a patent US patent tell, <laughs> was, yeah. tell us a little bit about that I think this is probably my malicious mind bubbling to the surface so I would have had experience in, in I think what you could coin is exploiting the EM spectrum. So as with a lot of other things, you know, these tools are developed to achieve one one thing. So in the case of 5G, yeah. communication. Communication, yeah. However, it's sort of fairly coincidental maybe that the frequency spectrum used, well, the fre- there's two bands, but the upper frequency spectrum used within 5G also happens to fall within the same level as your airport scanner. Oh. So myself and a colleague at the time sat back and thought, well, could we turn a 5G array that's out there using a few mobile phones into a giant airport scanner? Oh, wow. Uh, and so, so we filed the patent to, to do that. But for the good guys and you know the good teams out there, the, the idea is that you could combine this with other technologies such as CCTV, visual recognition systems, and support security authorities in very rapidly identifying people carrying potential threatening weapons, metal yeah. objects, yeah. and combine the two together so yeah. that you could... Uh, be more precise in your incident response, or be in the, the physical domain, mm. and, and direct them onto the, the potential target mm. far more rapidly. Well, I can tell you that certainly sounds like a very exciting development. I'd love to see his garage, uh, <laughs> airport scanners. Well, <laughs> the good news, Ben, I'm sure, and I know this, you're one of the good guys. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I hope I really enjoyed Great to that have conversation. Part of the team, yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to wrap that one up, Michael. He's looking over at us here to make sure we're getting ready to wrap up. Rowan, I really enjoyed that. Thanks to Ben. But this was kind of an eye-opener. I definitely... Will we ask Brendan back? Well, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) No, we can let him resume his seat. Well, Uh, we might get you to take over for me if I'm away again. It's good to step in every now and again a bit of banter. But yeah, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I think next time, though, with the weather, we should probably do it in the beer garden. It's a bit warm. We'll try and do some clinking noises. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, thank you very much for you, Ron. Thank you ben. indeed. Thank, thank you, again, you. Thank you to everybody listening, and we will see you all and hear you all and talk to you all very soon. Take care.